Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and we have a really, really awesome guest today here, uh, Allison Hainis, who has created a very, very successful freelance career for herself. Uh, quick spoiler spoiler alert, um, Allison quit her job in fashion after three and a half years, and within a year and a half of quitting her job, she went from zero to earning, to matching, and then ultimately beating her full-time salary doing freelancing. So she literally quit her job, not really having any clients, nothing lined up, uh, which she talks a little bit about in the interview in terms of whether that was a smart idea or not and what her specific situation looked like. But the point is that within a year and a half, she was able to grow, meet, and then ultimately beat her full-time salary and income. Uh, Allison shares a ton of great insights in terms of how she kickstarted her freelance career, some of the specific strategies that she's done to grow it, how she's calculated and figure out figures out her pricing, um, hourly versus project, what she really sort of, how she kind of learned some of these lessons the hard way and wrapped her head around what worked best for her and her clients. Um, she talks about her portfolio uh, and ways that, as, as I mentioned, ways that she's been able to grow and get more work and build um, and things that she's experimented with that have worked and things that she's experimented with that haven't worked to continue to grow her freelance business. So there's tons of really actionable advice and guidance if you are thinking about freelancing or want to grow your freelance career if you've already kickstarted it. This is a definite must listen episode. I know you guys are going to love everything Allison has to share. Now before we get to the interview, I want to give you guys a quick reminder that SFD is way, way, way more than just a podcast. I know a lot of you out there listening hear the podcast and maybe think that's it. And partially that's my fault because I didn't do a very good job at letting you know about all the other resources within the successful fashion designer community. But uh, there is tons more for you to get your hands on and all of it is absolutely free just like this podcast is. I have hundreds of free tutorials, templates, and books on things like Illustrator, creating tech packs, freelancing, landing your dream job and so much more so here's what I did I put together my best free content just for you as a podcast listener to help you get ahead in your fashion career Um, not to toot my own horn but I do not really see other influencers companies anybody out there who is kind of serving you guys in this way and giving you so much free content. So if you haven't yet, definitely please check it out. I would love to email you all my best resources right now. So here's what you can do. Take 30 seconds, hit pause on this episode and go to soheidi.com slash email. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email for instant access to my best free stuff. Again, soheidi.com slash email. If email is not your thing, I get that. Uh, I do also hang out at Instagram and you can find me there at at so Heidi at S E W H E I D I dot dot com. Just so so Heidi. Yeah. All right, you guys. Um, as always, access to the show notes. Just scroll down wherever you're listening. And now let's jump into the interview with Allison. 
Welcome to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, Allison. Can you please start out by introducing yourself to everyone and letting you know who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Yeah, thanks for having me, Heidi. Um, my name is Allison Haynes, and I'm a contract pattern maker. And I help small women's wear fashion brands keep control of their product development without having to deal with the technical nitty-gritty details. Awesome. You have your pitch super dialed in. I love that. <laughs> have you been practicing for a while? Um, yeah, I, it's kind of ever evolving, and, yeah. but like trying to articulate better what I do and who I help and yeah. getting people's reactions as I go along. Yeah, I love it. Well, it sounds how it comes across. It sounds really refined. Um, so take us back to kind of the very beginning of your journey because, you know, I know a little bit about your history, but everyone out there doesn't. Uh, everyone out there who's listening doesn't. So tell us a little bit about how you got started in fashion and how you kind of got to where you are right now. Um, yeah, so going way back, I always had an interest in sewing. Um, when I was like elementary school, really little, my friend and I would sew doll clothes and um, never really thought fashion would be my career. Um, but as part of like my high school curriculum, we had to look up like career ideas that we wanted to maybe go into. So I was like, oh, I'll look up fashion. Let's see, you know, what kind of jobs are out there. And I found out there's actually a lot more in fashion than just a designer, like a big name designer. Um, so that's what I ended up majoring in in college um, was fashion design. And I have a business administration minor as well to kind of get both sides of that. Um, so yeah, went to school for that, graduated and got a job right away um, working for a smaller brand doing a lot of different wearing a lot of different hats because it was a small brand doing textile design pattern making product development and it was it was a great experience now um tell us a little bit about this because you don't live in a fashion hub and you did not go to school in a fashion hub yet you've been able to build what I feel is a pretty substantial career, um, you know, from the time you graduated to, and this is obviously, you know, you and I have worked together before, and I, I do know a lot about your work experience and where you're at now, but you living in a non-fashion hub, you know, had this opportunity to get this great job and are now doing full-time freelancing. So can you talk a little bit about that? You know, um, starting off, like, where did you go to school and and sort of what was your experience, you know, not being in New and maybe, you know, if you haven't been in New York or LA, you don't have a comparison, but just talk a little bit about your experience because I think that's a barrier that a lot of people have is, well, I don't live in a fashion hub. I have to live in a fashion hub. Yet you've made great traction not being in a fashion hub. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm based in a suburb of St. Louis called St. Charles um, and went to school here and stayed here after graduation. And yeah, I guess when <laughs> the initial decision to come here for school was just... I didn't want to, like, my family's from the Midwest, and I didn't want to have to, like, fly home for holidays and stuff. So it was kind of more a financial decision of I need something that's affordable and in driving distance. So I came here, and then the more, so I've been in the St. Louis area for nine years now, okay. and the, the more I'm here, the more I realize there's a lot more fashion yeah. here than what people realize. Yeah. Um, there's several you know, medium to larger companies headquartered here, um, as well as a lot of startups. I think the Midwest is a great place for startup brands because it's low cost of living. It's easy to get office space here. It's easy to ship and distribute from here. Um, 
So it's kind of hidden, but it, there, there is a lot here. Um, and yeah, so I guess my decision to be here and not like move to LA or New York was more just like practical and financial, but I'm, I'm glad that I stayed and there is, it's kind of exciting to be a part of a smaller fashion industry and getting to like get to getting to know people more like it's a more of a community I feel like than it would be in one of those bigger cities where it's just huge ah okay very interesting so it sounds like I mean you've it really sounds like you found more than enough opportunity in this sort of air quotes non-fashion hub than you Mm -hmm. maybe would have imagined it even existed in the first place yeah, and I'm still finding out about places. Like, I met a company um, when I was at Trade Joe in Chicago last month that's, like, 15 minutes from my house that wow. I didn't even know was here, and they sell trims <laughs> and a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm like, why didn't I not know this? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm still learning all the places that are here. Yeah. Well, I love this because one of the things I talk about um, in uh, my ultimate guide to freelancing in the fashion industry is sort of these middle, and I I say middle America brands, but it's all these brands and these companies that like a lot of people don't know exist, but they're still out there. They make everyday clothes for everyday people. And there's a lot of them. There's so many more than you ever would have thought. And a lot of them you've never heard of, but they're still making product and they still need help or they still, you know, have their own little niche market that they service. It sounds like you've discovered a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, okay, so after school, um, so you decide to stay there for family reasons, practical reasons, being close to, um, you know, your support network and whatnot. And mm-hmm. then you got a job at a small brand. And how long did you work there? Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so I was there three and a half years. So I started, like, up, graduated in December, started there in January, uh, right after graduation. And, yeah, kind of was there three and a half years and learned so much because um, they have some of their production uh, here locally. And so it was nice to be able to get to work with the creative director and talk, you know, have lunch with the uh, sales team and customer service people and, you know, really get talk to them about what our customer's saying and also talk to, you know, the production manager and kind of seeing start to finish how product was designed yeah. and um, manufactured um, was I, I found that to be a super valuable experience. So it sounds like, um, you know, working for a smaller brand, you had the opportunity to get to be involved and learn about more parts of the process. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I, go ahead, yeah. No, I, say, I, I really enjoyed that. That was my favorite thing yeah. about, I think, working for smaller brands is you get to, um, like build those connections with people in other departments and really see how your job fits in with the overall big picture. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, so you worked there for about three and a half years and you got to wear a lot of hats. Although what was your primary role? Um, so my title was, um, fashion and graphic designer. So I did, um, I worked primarily on the product development team. So I helped with pattern making, um, communication with the factories and um, also did some textile design because it was all printed apparel. Okay, gotcha. And so if I'm not mistaken, after the three and a half years, you decided to take a leap and dive into freelancing. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> did things, took a big jump and quit, gave a month's notice, quit my job and 
started freelancing full time with, I, I mean, I, when I quit my job, I had zero clients. So that's probably not the best way to jump into <laughs> freelancing, but it's turned out well. So Okay. Yeah. So let's dive into that. So um, first of all, when exactly was that that you quit? Um, so I quit in the end of May of 2017. So okay, so May 2017. Two and a half years ago, yeah. Okay. And, and so we're recording uh, October of 2019 right now, mm-hmm. so a, about a year and a half. Wait, two and a half years? Two and a half. Two and a yep. half. Yeah. Whoa, it's been a long time. I know. Yeah, wow. Okay, so well, first of all, what made you decide that you wanted to take that transition from working full-time to freelance? It was kind of a whole series of things. Um, partly, like, the job that I was at, I didn't feel like I could... There was much opportunity to grow more and take on more responsibility there, just mm-hmm. because it was small. Mm-hmm. Um and I had gotten really efficient at doing my job. And so it was taking me less time to do it. And then there were some management changes and just kind of the dynamics of the office were slightly different. And so I was kind of, I was looking around the St. Louis area, like maybe I want to get a different job full time. Um, you know, what do I want to do? And I kind of considered it for almost a year of just kind of what's my next step going to be. Um, and then I thought, you know, maybe I should try freelancing because I didn't really see another job opening that was currently available in St. Louis that looked like it would be a good fit. Okay. Um, and so I was like, what if I tried freelancing? And so I debated that for a very long time. And <laughs> <laughs> my husband was very helpful in uh, helping me, like, think through that and, like, what if I did this and what if I you know, how would that look? And should I do this? Is this the right thing for me? Um, and he finally was like, you need to quit your job and you need to do it on Friday. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I think cause I would have debated forever. Yeah. Um, and so he was finally like, I, I got this. I'll hold, hold down the fort while you're getting kind of the business, your business started. Um, so yeah, I very nervously turned in my resignation and it worked out well. They ended up being my first client, and, and I still contract for them. So wow. it ended up going very smoothly, and yeah, kind of built from there. How were you able? You're not the first person that I've um, talked to who's done that, where they they quit their job and then their job turns into their first client. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you were able to have that conversation and what that actually looked like? Yeah. So. I, I kind of just left it out there. Like when I resigned, I, you know, I'd said, you know, I'm starting this freelance business and while I don't want to, you know, obviously come to the office every day and be here full time, like I am as a full time employee, you know, I love to continue working with you on certain, certain tasks and certain things. Um, and they didn't end up replacing me with a full time person. Mm. So that kind of helped, I think because I just, I had been there long enough that I kind of knew the process and I knew how things worked and they just thought it was easier for me to keep, you know, helping than to find somebody new. Um, Cause I mean, we aren't in a huge fashion hub, so there is a lot here, but it's probably not as easy to find like the right job or the right candidate, you know, the right person for each job as it would be if there was kind of a bigger pool of opportunities. Yeah. 
So yeah, it was more of an informal, I guess, conversation of, I threw it out there, hey, I'd still be interested in working with you if you still want to work with me. Yeah. And then they're like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so. But I, I mean, as much as you say it's informal, I think there's still a lot to be said for just having that conversation. Because I think you could easily just say, I'm moving on to something else. And you could maybe be nervous to tell them that you're freelancing or not actually take the initiative to say, you know, I would actually really love to keep working with you if you're open to doing it on a freelancer contract basis. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you, at some point, I think you as the freelancer have to kind of take the reins and initiate that conversation. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I didn't really have, like, a big strategy behind it. It was just... <laughs> or I, I liked my coworkers, and mm -hmm. I didn't want to... Yeah, you know, because it's a small company, there weren't multiple people in each position, so I yeah. didn't want to, like, leave them hanging yeah. either. So I just kind of threw it out there, and it worked out. And it worked. Okay, so we're um, May 2017. You give your notice. They turn into your first client, but I can't imagine that's enough to actually sustain you because otherwise it would just be working a full-time job again for them just as mm -hmm. a freelancer. So where were you at in terms of like, okay, well, now what? I have to probably try to find some more work. Where do I even begin? Yeah, so... I worked with you, Heidi, which was very helpful. Um, you kind of gave me some coaching that summer about kind of freelancing 101, I guess. <laughs> um, and so I did a lot of like cold pitch emails that summer. I did a lot of researching, probably spent more time than I should have. <laughs> I hadn't really like updated my website or portfolio or anything since college because I hadn't applied for a job since then. Um, so I spent time doing that, probably using it to procrastinate from other things, <laughs> but um, yeah, and trying to get to know more of the fashion community here as well. Um, so my next client actually came from um, a college um, classmate, and she was working on a brand and was stepping away from that. Um, or she was freelancing for them and was stepping away from that and had given them my name to do some work. So it was kind of connections, I guess, from college that helped as well. Yeah. And so, um, okay, so you got your next client through a friend you knew from college. And mm -hmm. how did you go about sort of approaching them or maybe you know they reached out to you but how did you go about having some of these initial conversations in terms of like what tasks you're going to do for them and how much you're going to charge and like navigating that whole space yeah so it's a it's been a lot of trial and error in that area yeah <laughs> um so I started out it was actually kind of funny I I started out just telling people that I was a freelance designer, um, thinking that, I don't, for some reason I had it in my head that to be a pattern maker, you had to have like 30 years experience and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, well, I don't have 30 years experience. I have like four years experience. Oh. Um, so I didn't even tell people that I had pattern making experience and could do that, even though that's the part I love doing the most. Oh, um, wow. So, and I was... Um, giving people an hourly rate and so very different um then like six months into freelancing I realized um first of all that 
most of my clients were hiring me for pattern making. Even though I had nowhere on my site that I offered pattern making, I didn't really tell people I did that. They just knew what what my experience had been at the brand I used to work at okay. and knew that I was kind of good with the more technical side. Um, so I was like, why don't I just call myself a pattern maker? Because that's the part I like doing, and that's what everybody is paying me to do, you know, whether or not I'm marketing that or not. Um, so then I kind of went in that direction, and it, that's been a very, very, I'm so glad I did that and, like, focused on that's pretty much all I do. I don't do design. I don't, you know, do the other pieces. I do the technical pattern making side. Okay. Oh, I, I'm really excited to talk about this because you've like super niched yourself, which is amazing, but also something I think can feel very scary to people. So, um, so you had some reservations about calling yourself a pattern maker because you didn't feel like you had enough experience. Mm-hmm. And then it sounds like that changed when did, did you, by the sheer fact that people were paying you to do this, you gained the confidence to say, okay, well, I guess I am a pattern maker. I can call myself this. I can do this. Was that really the, the tipping point for you? Yeah. It was realizing that that's what I was doing anyway. Mm-hmm. And my clients were happy with the work that I was doing and I was happy with the work that I was doing. And so I was like, why can't I call myself a pattern maker if that's what I'm getting paid to do? <laughs> you yeah. know? So... And yeah. how did how did that shift your business? You said after, you know, those first six months, you decided to call yourself a pattern maker, and then things changed. So what changed, and, and why? Um, kind of what you were saying about niching yourself, Heidi. It's It's been really strange, but, like, I was really scared at first to focus on, you know, whether it was a focus on smaller brands or a focus on design or a focus on a certain type of product or price point. Like, I was like, what if I turn business away by focusing um but I found that actually the more that I focused and the more that I niche down and almost the more that I turn away work that isn't like in the niche that I want to be in the more work comes to me organically it's very strange but yeah I think it's just like too vague for people to remember or like think of a project or think that they need you for or think of a person to refer to you um, if you just say, oh, I'm a designer and I do everything, mm-hmm. they're like, I'm not really sure, like, who needs everything, you know? <laughs> Whereas if, you know, now I mostly work with small to mid-sized brands. I don't have any huge corporate clients. And I only do women's wear and I, you know, do the pattern making and product development, so the technical piece of it. And, you know, if you say that to someone, they're like, oh, I know a small brand designer. Or, you know, I know someone who needs a pattern maker. And so it's much easier for, like, referrals or people to remember what you do when it's much more focused. And I get to be a lot faster because I'm doing similar things often. So I don't have to switch gears throughout my day. Yeah. I love that. And it's so true because, and I've heard this theory, not a theory, because I think it's proven, if I'm not mistaken, um of like when you tell someone what you do and it's very general they're like "Eh, okay they kind of brush it off but when it's really specific they all of a sudden are like oh yeah I know someone who does the exact same thing or oh yeah I know someone who needs that service there's almost like the more specific the more instantly there's a connection and like you said that it sounds like you've grown a lot through referrals and word of mouth because (laughs) people remember and they immediately think of oh yeah I know this person that needs that yeah yeah 
And that's the other advantage of being in a non-fashion hub is there's not that many people yeah. that are contract pattern <laughs> makers. Like I, I know of one, maybe two others in St. Louis. And there may be others as well that I sure. don't know of, but there's not like a hundred of us. Yeah. So it becomes a lot more easy. Like once you get involved in like to make those connections and, and, you know, find people who are a good fit to work together yeah. when you have a smaller pool and everyone knows everybody. And so, um, it sounds like, and I could be mistaken, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this. Do most of the brands that you work with, um, are they within driving distance from you or are you working with a lot of people around the country or maybe even in, in other countries? Um, so all us, Okay. the majority currently of my clients are St. Louis based or like in this, you know, within 45 minutes, an hour up here. Okay. Um, but I do have some clients that are like Texas, East coast. Um, and a lot of the factories that my clients work with are one of the two coasts. Okay. So we're communicating to the coast, but yeah, the majority of my clients are based in this area. And do you get to do most of your work remote or do you go to their offices often or what is, what does that arrangement look like for you? So I have one client that I go to their office um, on Mondays for meetings. Okay. Um, but everybody else, it's mostly remote. And then they may come to me. I may come to them. We may meet halfway for like a fitting okay. if it works out. So it's it, it kind of depends on where they are, where I'm are, and what our schedules are. Yeah. Um, but if they're not close enough or it just doesn't work out to do an in-person fitting, then we do like a Skype fitting. Okay, gotcha. And that work that seems to work well enough for you and them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I love that. Um, and can you, there's a statistic I know about your um, freelance income in relation to your uh, full-time salary. Would you be willing to, sh- I think you know what I'm referencing. Would you be willing to share yeah. that? You don't need to share the exact numbers, but just yeah. sort of how much you've been able to grow. Can you tell everybody that? Yeah, so... Uh, like a year and a half into freelancing, um, and ever since then, I've made as much or more than my previous like monthly salary. Okay. So that's been very exciting. That was kind of my goal that if within two years I could like meet my previous salary, then I would consider my business a success. Yeah. So it's been very exciting. That is, that's a huge congratulations. And I know you've worked very hard and you continue, you are just a very hard work in general. So I mean, to sort of essentially start from zero and then within a year and a half match and then ultimately beat your full-time salary is phenomenal. Um, And to sort of clarify, does that mean working 80 to 100 hours a week or what does your actual, you know, realistic schedule look like? So it does vary a little bit week to week. Some some weeks are a little slower. Some weeks are more full, just depending on when projects fall. Yeah. Um, but overall, like I try to keep my hours to 40 hours a week. Okay. Uh, like I said, sometimes. And I kind of plan, like the, the nice thing about being freelance, and I, I really enjoy it, is the freedom to, like if one day I want to, you know, take the morning off and do my grocery shopping and mm-hmm. run errands when it's not busy, then I can. And I may just, you know, work a couple, you know, hours in the evening 
to, if I'm, you know, nothing else planned. Yeah. So it's kind of a flexible, but roughly 40 hours. Okay. So you're not like drowning in a bunch of work. It's like, oh, I'm beating my salary, but I'm working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. No. Yeah. No, okay. No. I love yeah. that. I mean, there may be, be, you know, a couple days here and there. I'm trying to finish it up. Yeah, of course. A product before a deadline, but no. Okay. Overall, <laughs> I don't want to work that much. <laughs> you know, if it was a full-time job, we wouldn't consider that like fair. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's like, if I'm my own boss and I'm working that much, like I have no one to blame but myself. Right, right, right. You're in control. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier you started out hourly and then I'm not sure if that shift happened around six months when you went from calling yourself a freelance designer to a pattern maker, but I know you started out hourly and if I'm not mistaken, you now do project or flat rates. Can you talk a little bit about, um, if you want to share numbers and you're comfortable, you can, otherwise you can just talk in general about, um, you know, sort of what you've learned, how you've maybe been able to, you know, increase your ultimately your hourly rate by going to project basis. And I know you said a lot of this was trial and error. So I'd love for you to share just some of the things that you encountered along the way um, from where you started to where you are now in regards to pricing and figuring out what that looks like for charging your customers. Yeah, so I think the biggest, there are several things that made me switch to project. Um, And being able to you know, increase my rate over time without having to charge the client more was one of them, but it actually wasn't the biggest one that made me switch. Um, the reason why I s- switched is uh, I had one client where I was subcontracting for them, and I realized that, like, charging a client by the hour, there was always kind of frustration in the end, and especially, like, when you're billing at the end of the month for the hours you've already used. Um, there was often... Yeah, it was kind of a challenge where they'd be like, oh, wow, that took a lot longer than I expected. Uh. Or why did you need to spend time on this? And like by having to itemize the hours, because in the end, they just want to know how much it costs to get their shirt made. And they don't really care, you know, how much per hour it is. Because, you know, like when I said, oh, it's this much per hour. They'd be like, well, how many hours is it going to take? And it's really hard to estimate exactly because things come up. Like, they may have a pattern already and I'm, you know, editing it. But, like, the file is slightly corrupted or it fit really poorly and I needed to, you know, redo it or something. And it's like you can't always anticipate that before you give an estimate. Yeah. Um, so there, there was always kind of this... Uh, kind of butting heads like sometimes it was very nice but you know like, there were like questions asked about it sometimes it was a little bit more like frustrated um vibe from it where yeah it just didn't it wasn't the best way to communicate the value of what they're getting versus what they're paying for it okay um so I wanted to be able to give them a price up front so that you know one if it was too expensive and they couldn't afford it or it didn't didn't want to afford it for how much they thought they were going to be able to earn off of this selling that style, mm-hmm. um, th- that they would know ahead of time. So that way, you know, they can cost that into like the price of the development into the price that they're going to sell it for to make sure that it's still profitable. Um, and to be, be able to make those decisions up front, I wanted to be able to 
do that. And then it's it makes it an easier decision because you don't have to, you know, they don't have to worry about how many hours is it really going to take? How much am I really spending on this? Yeah. Um, so I give pricing up front and then I charge half before the project begins and then ha- the other half on like the delivery of the final files. Okay. And that was due to <laughs> charging by the hour and having a large client uh, not pay me. So, yeah, it was kind of like all those two things were the major reason why I switched to flat pricing and giving the price up front. Okay. We'll get back to this episode in 20 seconds, but real quick, did you know that the SFD podcast is sponsored by you? We don't interrupt your listening experience with ads and instead rely on your support. There are three ways you can do that. One, tell a friend about the podcast. Two, sign up for the email list at soheidi.com slash email. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I dot com slash email. Three, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for supporting the SFD podcast. Now back to the episode. And how have you been able to manage? Like, so for example, you could give a flat price and you know, they, the file's not corrupt, everything looks good, and the project goes smooth, and you know in your head, okay, the flat price to do this pattern should take me approximately, you know, X time. I don't know, five hours, 20 hours, whatever the number is. But what do you do in a situation where you give a flat price, but, like, all these crazy things come up that you didn't anticipate initially, and it takes you two or three times as long, and all of a sudden you're like, actually, this flat price isn't fair for this project. Have you ever experienced anything like that? A little bit. I mean, I add in like enough into my flat price to because I'm covering all the risk of that, you know, yeah. as opposed to hourly where the client is risking having to spend more and more hours. I'm risking having to right, spend right. more hours. So I add in a little bit for that. And there are times where I'm like, yeah, I should have bid that project higher. Um, but I, I, I haven't, I've never gone back to the client and said, oh, you need to pay me more. Okay. I've just, you know, if, if I did another similar project with them after that, I would say, hey, I really underbid the previous one. Oh, I'm going to yeah. have to charge more for the next one. How do those conversations go over? Because I've had the same ones and I know they're not always easy, but as a freelancer, you do kind of have to stick up for yourself on that. So how have those conversations been for you? I haven't actually had a direct conversation like that yet. It's... Um, because every, every piece is different, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing the same exact piece twice. Right. Um, that I've just be, and and I guess I haven't underbid it so much that I've needed to like double my rate the next time or anything. So it, it hasn't, I haven't had to have a conversation with the client about that. I've just submitted a proposal for the new project and, you know, they've decided whether they wanted to do it or not. So you just submit the proposal and the new project is a higher price than you did the previous project for, but you actually don't discuss that. Yeah, because I, I have, so the, the way that I, um, backing up a little bit, I guess, kind of backstory of this, um, the way that I price things is I try to do it as like a package price. So um, my most popular package that most people hire me for is to like they have a design already done like their sketch or whatever and and most likely fabric picked out already and 
So I'll work with them to do the pattern, do a couple of fit samples to make sure the fit is approved, um, put together a tech pack for them, and um, do the grading for the different sizes. Okay. So pretty much at the end of the project, they have everything they need to pass on to a factory to get pre-production samples or production started. So because every piece is very different and, you know, because... I don't know going into it, is it going to take one fit sample or is it going to take three fit samples? Yeah. So is it's kind of a flat price for that outcome of having what you need to go into production. And so I, I build enough into my price that kind of what I think is a realistic worst case scenario, <laughs> I guess, would still pay me, you know, I'm not just getting paid a dollar an a hour fair or something. Rate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it'll be lower, obviously, and that's, I'm, you know, banking on it, you know, one project versus another, they're going to even each other it out. Averages. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's great, because I was going to kind of lead into my next question, which is sort of managing, um, and I use this word very loosely, but sort of excessive revisions, or managing scope creep, which is where the project sort of slowly creeps out of the original scope of the agreement. Um, so, you know, they're kind of two different situations, but the excessive revisions is like, maybe you think the fit's good, but they're like, no, we need to keep tweaking it. And next thing you know, you're doing like five, six, seven fit samples. And that may be an extreme, but it's mm-hmm. like, you know, gosh, this was a flat price. This wasn't really built in. And now you're just giving me excessive revisions and maybe being a little bit difficult. And, and I'm telling you like, no, this is, this is good. This is where we are. But the client keeps pushing, um, for more revisions. Have you had any experiences or challenges with that? I have a little bit. And, um, especially I had one client when I was, uh, still billing hourly that was like that. And it was, it was so <laughs> difficult because it wasn't, it wasn't like the fit was bad. It was, they couldn't make up their mind about mm. the design. So they're like, let's try it a little bit more full or, no, let's go back to more narrow, but mm. keep this other aspect. <laughs> and so it's more like they're using the samples to uh, have a visual of their design mm-hmm. rather than getting the fit correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why when I went to, I like went towards these packages and went towards flat pricing, like I cap the pattern revisions and fit samples at three. Ah, you do um, have a cap. Okay, great. I do. Great. Yeah. Great. And and that's like I, I for for myself I figure if if I can't get the fit right within three, um, like I I've i rarely needed more than three revisions to get the fit right. Okay. And if some fluke happened and I was like, yeah, I I really do need a fourth one or maybe a fifth one to get it right, and that's on me, then I would do it for you know no you, additional. You price. just absorb that, right? Yeah, but I I tell them three. Because that's kind of the cap of what I think is reasonable. You should, like, I should be able to get the fit in three. So if your design, if you're not changing your mind about your design, three is plenty. Right. And then if they're changing their mind about the design and you're not getting it in three, but it's not because of the fit, it's because of the design, then right. you can kind of open that up then and I have can, that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So I do, ca- I do cap it at three. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that because part of me was feeling like, ah, sometimes you can work with clients that just revise and revise and revise. And it's almost like they're just nervous to make a decision to say, okay, we're ready to go forward because for whatever reason they're procrastinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Okay. So yeah, I do have 
like every project is slightly different because it's a different garment that we're making but the process and like the steps and the number of meetings and the number of fittings is like somewhat capped so I can I can estimate that okay that's great closely that's great yeah. so um Going, thinking about your pricing now that you are where you are in your freelance career and business, would you have followed the same path? So kind of, you know, talking to maybe people out there who are thinking about starting to freelance, would you have followed the same structure of starting hourly and then, uh, you know, learning what you learned and then adjusting to project or would you have started project or how do you feel your journey went now that you can look back on it in hindsight and maybe give someone else some advice? I think project is definitely the way to go. Um, first starting out, the advantage of hourly is that you can see how long things really take you to do. Mm-hmm. So if, if in a previous position or previous jobs or projects, you already know how long it takes you to do things, then I would just start out doing project. Um, I, I found it helpful to... like. I kept track of my hours, and so I, I I knew as I was charging by the hour how long things were taking me, and mm-hmm. so then when I set my flat prices, I wasn't, like, too far off, Okay, you know? right. Like, I'm always adjusting them slightly, um, and, you know, there's a vest. It, it kind of depends on the complexity of the product. Like, a T-shirt and a coat are very different, right. so those are going to have different prices right. for the same deliverables I guess yeah um but yeah so I guess my advice would be if you know how long things take you start off with project if you don't it's probably safer to do hourly until you know that because otherwise you're probably going to weigh underbid your flat prices (laughs) (laughs) which is what I've seen a lot of freelancers do they weigh underbid because they underestimate how much time and they also weigh underbid because there's there can be a learning I think it's it's personality dependent but I I've seen um that there can be a steep learning curve in terms of how to manage the project and how to manage the client and make sure that things stay within scope Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's anything you've learned the hard way um not like any massive epic <laughs> fails, but yeah, it's it's a constant. Um, the other nice thing too, just from like a, a managing the project side that a project rate is, I found helpful, is there's less negotiation about the price. Mm. Because like when you tell someone an hourly rate, they're like, hmm, well, we're actually thinking $10 less than that. Yeah. You know, and it's so much easier to negotiate that. And you're almost like, it's so much more personal for them to say, no, we don't think you're worth as much as you think you're worth. Yeah. Um, versus a flat price. It's, it's more like, like if you go to the store and buy something, that's the price you don't like haggle with the <laughs> store, you know? So I think it's, it's a lot easier to like be confident in your pricing if it's like that uh-huh. like it, it doesn't open it up for negotiation as much okay I've found I love that um, and it's also easier from and just in general like having a having kind of a fixed scope project um, that you can do for multiple clients is so much more easy to organize because you know, like I even have an outline and I give clients like a timeline of here are the steps. Like we're going to have a meeting and we're going to talk about this. And then, you know, 
it's going to take me a week or two. I'm going to work on the pattern. Then we'll get together for a fitting. And so like the steps are very organized. And so it helps. I, I like lists and organization. So it helps me like I can, I can check, check off each thing on the list as I'm going with each project. And you know, the client can too. So they know what to expect. And so do I. So that helps a lot. Just organizing and managing a project is setting the expectations up front. Okay. I love that. I love that. It's a a great strategy. It sounds like it's worked really well for you. And it's been great for the clients. They kind of know exactly what they're going to get up front. And you've been able to create this system, like you said, to sort of manage and walk them through the whole project and the process. So it's very clear expectations are set and it's very understandable for everyone to digest and manage. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. I think, yeah. One of the biggest things that I've learned is that sometimes like clients that, you know, may be slightly frustrating. It's, it's often not them. It's like, you're like, I'm not communicating ah. like, as clearly or their expectation at the beginning was different than my expectation or, how much they thought they were going to pay hourly versus what I thought it was going to take me was different. And so that's been kind of a big thing of like why I've, you know, moved to the flat rate packages is because it is like making sure like I want to over communicate, you know, and over um, make sure they really know that we're, we're on the same page at the beginning because that has cleared up so many things, I think. It, it just makes the client relationship so much easier and smoother. Yeah. Can you share a specific example of when you learned the hard way about how um, you said that you had some frustrating experiences and you were like, you know what, actually it wasn't really the client's fault. It was maybe that I wasn't communicating clearly. Yeah. So even just about like the timeline of things, um, like if I'm expecting, oh, their fabric is going to arrive here like on this date and then I'll be able to do the sample and do the fitting but I didn't like communicate to them oh your fabric needs to be here by this date otherwise I'm gonna have to push the project back slightly Mm. you know and or you know things like that or even even like little things like setting a meeting time with the client and they're like 20 minutes late but like, I have another meeting after that. So it's, it's like letting people know ahead of time, hey, like, if you're, if you're going to be late, like, I'd rather we reschedule, you know, after, at a certain point. Yeah. Um, but just, like, setting those expectations so that I'm not frustrated, like, why, or the other way around, that I have to wait on a client because they're late to the meeting. Yeah. You know? And, but then realizing, well, I didn't actually, like, yes, I set a meeting time, but... I probably could have confirmed it, you know, a couple hours before and could have made it clear that I have other meetings that day. So, you know, if, if you can't meet it at that time, then we need to reschedule. Yeah. You know, think just like little things like that where it can be frustrating on either them or me, but there are a lot of ways where if we just communicate it better that it would alleviate that. And sometimes those are lessons you do have to learn the hard way. I mean, I think when it comes to freelancing or, you know, honestly, anything in life, like people can give you all the advice, you can read all the books, do all the coaching courses, like whatever the thing is, but it sounds like some of it you've just had to go through trial and error and learn firsthand and experience and then figure out how to adjust accordingly. 
Yeah, definitely. Got it. A lot of trial and error. Yeah. What else have what have some of the other really big trial and error lessons that you've learned um, that if you could go back and tell yourself, you know, two and a half years ago when you were kickstarting this, um, might have made your life a little easier. What are some of those big lessons? I guess so there's one that I guess is a try and failed and learned <laughs> from it and then others that were tried it by accident and it ended up being successful like really successful oh cool yeah let's hear about expecting. them yeah um so the tried and didn't work was subcontracting okay um so that was just explain for someone who's listening who might not understand what that means can you give us a, a layman's explanation yeah so i'm um, so the per the client who had hired me was a small like sample factory and so i was they hired me to do work subcontract to their clients right the brains okay so you're not working um, with the actual end client there's like a middleman yes yeah it's okay. kind of like it, an agency in a way um so the the frustrating part of that um and that was hourly too which yeah it was difficult was was the communication like i didn't always have direct communication with the client that i was working with because mm -hmm. of that middle person like we were both talking to the middle person but not to each other mm -hmm. especially at the beginning where and and so there were a lot of these things that weren't communicated up front that weren't that we weren't on the same page of the expectations weren't the same and it was it was yeah, it did not work well. <laughs> um, so I would not have done that um, had I known. Um, the thing that surprised me that worked really well um, was, I guess, like when I first started, I was like, I want to get more involved with the St. Louis community. And I'm very much an introvert, so I don't like networking in the traditional <laughs> sense of the word. So I was like, well, I don't really want to do that, but I, I should probably, you know, make more friends in the area, in the industry. Um, so I decided I would join Fashion Group International. We have a chapter in St. Louis. And I was like, I told myself, I'll try it for a year, see, you know, see what this is about, see if their events are, you know, helpful, you know, to learn things from on the professional development side and also, you know, see what other people go to these things. Um, and that turned out to be, a really great experience so I'm glad I tried that um, because it did like it did help me like make those connections with other people that who are able to refer work to me and I can refer work to them and um, also you know since I'm a one-person business like to have kind of I don't have like coworkers in the traditional sense. So to have a community of people that we, we can kind of like talk shop and talk about fashion and who kind of understands the, the industry, mm -hmm. that was really helpful. Um, and then just being able to meet with people, like when people ask like, Hey, can we get coffee in? Like, can I pick your brain on some things? Um, and in the beginning, you know, if I didn't have as much work, I was like, well, sure, you know, what else What else do I have to do? <laughs> um, but it, that's turned out to be, like, it's, like, actually literally paid off to do 
those types of meetings because just being helpful to people and like building community and being nice and you know that's the type of person I am too so it's not like I strategize to make that happen but um that's been really cool to see about how people are willing to help you and also are very thankful if you can help them too so it sounds like what might start have started out as you met some people through FGI, Fashion Group International, and then, you know, in X amount of time, one person reaches out and says, hey, can I pick your brain over coffee? And you're like, sure, let's do it. And you go and you just, you know, help them out a lot and you walk away and then maybe a month or two months or however long down the road, a referral comes through them or some type of work, like you said, literally mm-hmm. pays off through that relationship. Am I kind of understanding yeah. that right? Yeah, definitely. That's yeah. totally yeah so that was cool to see because that was something where it's like I tried it and I didn't really know what to expect from like you know kind of giving time to the fashion community and spending time kind of building those relationships um but it's definitely been a big positive thing that I've done that's awesome that's awesome I'm so glad to hear that and I love your willingness to experiment and go into this and being like well I don't know if it's gonna work because that's how a lot of these things are right you have to try them and maybe that works really well in St. Louis and it might not work in another city or you know mm-hmm. and or maybe someone else has had a different experience with subcontracting sometimes it can be a unique situation for each person depending on a lot of variables and so mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff is you just kind of have to try it and you might not get anything out of it but you might learn or you never know like you said you were like really surprised that this actually turned into a way to literally pay off Mm -hmm. yeah I love that Um, I think like one thing I found helpful to do is like things like that to put a time limit you know like I like I said I'm gonna try this for a year or six months or whatever yeah to give it time to really you know because if you go to like one or two events and you're like well this didn't work and you give up you know it, it wasn't enough time to really see what could come of it yeah yeah no you're right you do have to give it a good a plus effort and sometimes that does take a a minute especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to you know air quote networking or building relationships and making friends like they don't it doesn't happen overnight Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, definitely I love that um I'd love to touch on two other things um one is and this is just something that comes up in uh, the SFD community quite a bit, but um, can you talk a little bit about what you have or maybe haven't done and what you know new clients um, ask of you in regards to keeping your portfolio and your website up to date and sort of, I'm going to say this in <laughs> maybe not so nice terms, but sort of spinning your wheels on some of that stuff that I think is very easy for designers to get lost in the weeds on? Yeah, so it's definitely... I've fallen into the trap of, (laughs) is, you know, it's not good enough to publish yet, um, and spending so much time on it. So, that's another big advantage for focusing and niching, is you can have a very focused portfolio, and you don't have to have, like, five portfolios, you know, because if I'm only working with one type of brand and, you know, very tightly focused product area... Um, like for me, it's women's wear. Yeah. Um, I don't, I know for sure. I don't need to include anything that's not that in my portfolio. Yeah. Like I'll, I'm only going to put the projects that I want to get more of that type of work 
you know. Um, so that's helpful to make it kind of a quicker process. I don't actually update my portfolio that often. Um, it's one thing that I'm trying to be better at. Um, I guess as build kind of build into the process with clients is to get feedback from them at the end of a project, um, regardless of how it went or whether I would want to use the product in my portfolio or not, but just to get the feedback and to, you know, let them know at the beginning of the project that I'm going to ask for feedback at the end. Mm. Um, cause that's really helpful of, you know, how they felt the project went, but then also at that point, there are several clients where based on their, their feedback, I'm like, Hey, this is great. Do you mind if I use part of this for a testimonial on my site? Mm. Or may I share the marketing images from the style we worked on together and link to your site once they've launched publicly? Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of my approach to it now is to kind of do that organically as, as pro as I'm working on projects um, I don't have many people ask me like, Hey, can you send a portfolio before I start working with you? Mm. I think because a lot of my work has come through referral. Mm -hmm. So they already have like a common person that they know that they can like trust me. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe at the beginning you, you did get a little stuck in the weeds on your portfolio. I, I think you made some comments alluding to that yeah. earlier as well yeah. as just right now. But as time has gone on, it's not this continual rabbit hole of time and having to keep it constantly up to date. And like you said, a lot of the word of mouth and referrals you're getting, which is how most freelance businesses do grow successfully, um, you you don't even have the need to keep it up to date. Yeah. 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 I love that. I love yeah, that. I've maybe done, you know, I may like tweak some wording here and there and update my profile picture, you know, Yeah. Oh, and add a project or two once or twice a year, you know. That's not <laughs> like much at all, though, once time. or twice no. a year. That's not much. No, um, yeah. So, so speaking of sort of time and where you maybe are or aren't putting your time, so you're not putting your time into your portfolio, um, I've heard you talk before in, in different conversations that we've both been part of about how you do try to structure your work week in regards to working on the business versus, you know, working in the business, working with clients versus working on trying to get new clients. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you sort of have approached managing your workload so that you do still have time to think about getting new clients and getting proposals out and stuff like that? Yeah. So this is definitely something that I'm wanting to work on more of in the coming months. Um, I try to reserve Fridays. Like I don't schedule appointments or fittings or meetings on Fridays. So I try to reserve that day to just work on business stuff. Um, all this year I've been blogging about product development and, you know, things in that, in that process that my clients, you know, questions that they ask me about the pro about like, how does this work or how does this work? And so I've been blogging a couple times a month. Um, so I'll spend Friday maybe working on a blog post or catching up on email or, I, working on 
so along with the blog and also just along with trying to set expectations like you know if a client asks me you know if I have multiple people ask me for like the same thing like hey what measurements do I need to get from my fit model you know mm-hmm. then you know like last Friday I, I worked on a document that it like has the diagram of the of like a fit model and it shows where to measure and how mm-hmm. to measure and all the measurements that need, you know <laughs> that I can send people so I guess um things like that that are either helpful in in the process of working with my clients or that I can kind of use as part of a blog post um so those are the main things I guess that I'm spending time on my business in um and I try to reserve, like I said, Fridays to do that. Sometimes I'm bad and I let meetings and other stuff <laughs> encroach on that, but that's my goal. Yeah. And then in terms of the rest of the week, I try to just, like, spend, like, Tuesday I'm going to do a whole bunch of patterns. And then Wednesday, you know, I may have meetings lined up. And then Thursday I'm going to cut and sew the samples from the patterns I made on Tuesday. So I try to batch the work so that I'm not jumping back and forth between things all day. Gotcha. Um, how have the blog posts been going for you? And what, Well, first of all, I guess, what's your goal with those? And have they been helping you achieve that? So my goal was to have, I guess, some sort of content marketing. So to, like I post about the blog posts on my Instagram and just to be able to attract new clients and, or, or maybe more so that the people that are kind of like looking at my website or interested in, they might want to work with me, that if they don't know me, they can see that, like, I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And also, oh, she's helped me out already with, like, this kind of free advice or free blog post that's helpful to my business. Um, you know, if I hire her to do something for me, it's going to be even more value. Yeah. Um, so I guess that is the main goal. And I don't have like statistics to be able to say like, Oh, I've directly gotten this much income right. from having those blog posts. Um, I think it's kind of too early <laughs> to quantify <laughs> that, but I have gotten um, quite a few people that said that they've been, that the posts have been very helpful okay. and, and that like they're, they're overall very focused on like the same type of person, the same type of brand. Um, so they're not like scattered all over the place of who they're talking to. Like it's very focused niche again. Yeah. Which is easy because you work with a very specific client. So it's easy to talk to them. Yeah. And I, as I write, I, I, I think of a one specific person and I write to that person. Yeah. Um, because, you know, sometimes like, oh, do I need to explain this more? Will my client understand this? Or do I need to, like, break it down? And I'm like, okay, well, is the person I'm writing for, is that one person, do they understand that? You know, yeah. and then it's helpful to be able to make those decisions of how detailed or not detailed do I need to go. Yeah. And this is something it sounds like you only started recently. So I started doing it in January. Okay. My goal has been every other week. And I think I might have missed a few of those, but it's been fairly consistent um, the last 
I guess, nine months. Okay. But you freelanced for a year and a half or so before you kickstarted that. Yes. Yep. Okay. I want to point that out because I think that sometimes it can sound overwhelming to someone who's maybe wanting to kickstart. You know, if you're if you're listening out there and you've been freelancing for a while and you want a way to build, this could be a great idea. And I think that's awesome. But I also think it could feel overwhelming. Like, oh my gosh, I have to blog and I have to do this and I have to do that and I have to do all the things. And I think at the beginning, you don't need to do all the things. So Yeah. And I certainly didn't like... When I first first started, I think, like, all I had was my website with a portfolio on it okay. and, like, an about page, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, then I, like, added an Instagram and kind of lurked on there a while because I didn't have a personal <laughs> Instagram, so I was trying to figure out, like, what do you, how do I even do this? Yeah. Um, and then added the blog this year. Um, and have kind of a bare bones LinkedIn page and like that's it I don't have a Facebook page I don't yeah. do anything on the other social medias I just now am like in the works of starting like a newsletter list because like I didn't have that either you know yeah like there so there yeah I definitely started very much um like I I want to be able to grow organically and slowly and not like get too overwhelmed Especially because in the beginning, like, I didn't know what my niche was. So it would be very hard to, like, blog or have any sort of consistency in what I was, like, putting out. Yeah. If I didn't, if I was, like, changing that often. Yeah. So now, I, now I've, now i like, settled into the niche, so it's a lot easier to create that content. Do all those things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So, so great. And it's clearly resonating very well with your customer or potential customer as opposed to if you just start talking about all the things they, they they just get confused and overwhelmed and you're like what are you actually talking about what do you actually do versus now it's easier for everybody yeah that, that's the goal yeah <laughs> like I said, it's kind of ever evolving but yeah. I, I feel like I'm in a good direction right now it's always a work in progress Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of these amazing insights and your your story. And congrats again on your success because your trajectory Thanks. has really been um, phenomenal and inspirational and very well deserved. I know firsthand how hard of a worker you are. Um, so we won't discount how much effort you've put in to get to where you are. It doesn't magically happen. Um, but I would love to end the interview uh, with the question I ask everybody at the end of the show, and that is, what is one thing you wish people ask you about working in the fashion industry, but they never do? I love this question. <laughs> uh, I'm always curious to hear what everybody says. Um, mine is, I wish people would ask me more about, like, the number side of things, or, like, yeah. the left brain side of fashion. Like, what kind um, of numbers? Well, like... You know, being a pattern maker, there's a lot of numbers. Or, okay. like, I will totally geek out over, like, grading and how the body changes and grows with size. And, like, that's all numbers, you yeah. know. Um, or or even just, you know, with, with the creative design by analyzing the previous year's sales numbers or looking at the, the costing of... You know, if I do it this way or if I, like, how can I make um, the most creative garment given all the constraints that are there, be it cost or other things? Um, those things really excite me. But nobody, every, everyone thinks like, oh, 
you must be, you know, so creative and, you know, are you kind of bummed that you got kind of like the four-year degree and had to take math classes? I'm like, <laughs> no. I like, I'm glad that I had that well-rounded background, but yeah. like nobody asked about that. Oh, I love that. I, you know, I lean a little bit more technical, nerdy engineer too. I say nerdy very confidently <laughs> as a compliment. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I love that you point that out because there is so much more to fashion than the, just the creative design portion of it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. And I don't think most people realize it. They like yeah. at a cocktail party or whatever that, you know, it's like, Oh, what do you do? That's the typical thing. And I, I always get pegged as, oh, you must be, you know, a creative. Yeah. And then there's all these stereotypes of a creative. <laughs> and I feel like they're not always very accurate for what I actually do with my job. Yeah. But, yeah. I love that. That was a great answer. Um, and then last, where can everybody find you and connect with you online? So, my website is com. So, that's A-L-I-S-O-N. H O E N E S dot com. Awesome. And I'm on Instagram at Allison Heinous Design. Okay, awesome. We'll link to both of those in the show notes. Well, thank you again so much. It's been lovely to chat, and I really appreciate you sharing your journey and the the trials and errors and things you've learned along the way. I know they're going to be really valuable for everybody to hear. Oh, good. Thanks so much for having me, Heidi. It's been fun. Thank you so much for listening. Again, thank you, Allison, for your awesome interview and insights. Uh, two other really big thank yous. Uh, behind the scenes, we have my husband, Mark, who handles all of the tech. He makes sure that my audio sounds good, which you guys compliment me on. And I thank you for that because we have really spent some time to get that dialed in. He also does all the editing and makes the show possible, as well as a big thank you to my right-hand lady, Tara. She does so much work behind the scenes to coordinate these episodes, make sure that they get out to you, and they both... Mark and Tara deserve a huge, huge, huge shout out. Um, And of course, thank you to you for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. Um, Quick reminder, if you haven't yet taken advantage of all the other free resources that Successful Fashion Designer offers, you can head on over to SoHeidi.com slash email. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email to get the best of my free stuff. You can also follow me on Instagram if email is not your thing. I am hanging out over there at SoHeidi. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast, we always appreciate a nice review on iTunes. It just takes a second and it really helps other people find and discover the show. So if you have 30 seconds and can do that, very, very, very much appreciated. So thank you again so much for listening. You can check out all the show notes by scrolling down wherever you're listening. And I will talk to you in the next Successful Fashion Designer podcast episode.